0: I just remember about two or three years after the transplant, he comes to me and he says, I never thought I would see a a white man give a black man a kidney like that.
1: On the sports field and in the locker rooms, race doesn't matter. Socioeconomic status doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. It's all about what do we have to do to work towards this common goal?
2: I'm Eric Neckley, principal of the incredible Page High School in Greensboro. And I'm Marcus Goss, uh, the
3: proud principal at the amazing T. Andrews High School, the greatest high school in all of the land. Eric and I are the co founders of Great Expectations and hosts for the episode of the Bright Futures podcast. This is part of a three of a three part series. Um, and so we're creating a safe space where we can have conversations about race because we think it's just that important.
2: So we are really excited to welcome Tom Walter, baseball coach at Wake Forest University and his former player, Kevin Jordan. Tom and Kevin are also co-founders of Get in the Game. Tom and Kevin, we are excited to have both of you here. Tom, you're a middle-aged man. Hope that's okay. (laughs) White coach of an elite college baseball team. Go Deeks. Kevin, you are a young black man from a small town who played baseball under Coach Walter and graduated from Wake Forest in 2015. And you, unlike the rest of us are young, (laughs) you come from different backgrounds, not unlike Marcus and I, and you have different life experiences, but in the midst of the pandemic, you two came together to found the nonprofit, get in the game. You have a unique and powerful bond. So talk to us a little bit about how you met and how you came to know each other so well.
0: Coach. Oh, I'll take it. Um. Yeah, I met Coach on the re- recruiting trail back in 2009. I was just a, a baseball player geared on playing at the next level, and yeah, I was looking beyond college when Coach Walt talked to me and and took me on Wake Forest's campus. And if you ever if you've ever seen that place in the fall or spring, you can't say no to that. And if you've ever talked to Coach, then it's, it's tough to say. No to his recruiting pitch, but um, (laughs) I'm sure I I connected with coach more than I connected with every other coach um, on the recruiting trail and and Wake Forest, the campus kind of sealed it for me, but I met him just baseball wise. Yeah. You have a different story, Coach? (laughs)
1: No, my story is very similar. Kevin came to us as a kind of one of those five-star players, you know, had all the tools to be a, a major league baseball player. And we kind of had circled him in our recruiting class. We were a new coaching staff and kind of wanted Kevin to be the crown jewel of that class and uh, his athletic the, the uh, talent certainly led us to believe he could be that. And then when he got to campus, um, his persona was totally different from what I expected. He was humble. He was thoughtful. He was kind. You know, so many kids at that age that have such success and such talent are the the complete opposite, quite honestly. And Kevin just really kind of struck a chord with me immediately just by his presence and the way he carried himself. So it was was a special time for me too.
2: I'm sure. So talk to us a little bit. I remember how many ever years ago it was at that point of seeing this great news story about the two of you and at that time knew knew nothing of you two, but talk to us a little bit about that and how that help lead to getting the game a little bit?
1: Yeah. So Kevin's, uh, this all started in the spring of Kevin's senior year of high school. He signed a scholarship with us in November. And again, at this point, the only thing we're worried about is that the major leagues are going to come calling and he's not even going to (laughs) come to campus. So we're just hoping he comes to campus. That January or February, I guess it was, I get a call from a scout friend of mine who said he had just seen Kevin play. And You know, he didn't look like he was himself. He looked lethargic, which was the, if you ever seen Kevin play, that's the opposite of how he played. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Kevin used to play like his hair was on fire and, um, and, and he was, it was the opposite. And so the scout was asking me, hey, what's wrong with KJ? Is everything okay? And so I called Kevin's dad and I was like, hey, Mr. Jordan, I'm just checking in. Everything okay with Kevin? And, And his dad was like, well, yeah, you know, he's got a little virus and he's just not feeling, he's not feeling well, but, you know, we feel like he'll be past this in a week or so. Um, fast forward a month later, Kevin starts missing games. You know, he's got blood in his urine and and then obviously got identified as a as a much more serious problem um than, than just a virus. Kevin's agent at the time, Joel Wasserman, called me and said, Hey, we're on this. We're gonna get Kevin to Emory Hospital and get him seen um by you know doctors other than his hometown doctor. And uh so Kevin goes to Emory Hospital. They diagnose him with a kidney problem, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and by the time June rolls around, you know, Kevin's kidney function was down under 15 percent, um, still got drafted by the New York Yankees. <laughs> but uh, but but signing a professional contract was the furthest thing from his mind as, as he's now on dialysis and, you know, fighting for his life. You know, fast forward to that August, Kevin shows up on campus and. You know, one of the the seldom told parts of this story is just the courage that it took for him even to come to Wake Forest. I mean, you think about you as an 18-year-old fighting for your life, leaving the only family you know, leaving your doctors at home, moving to a campus, you know, 400 miles away, not knowing a single soul. And Kevin did that. And I I was just gave him a ton of credit for that. But um, I'll never forget when I first saw him. I hadn't seen him since the recruiting trip in November. I walked into a restaurant in downtown Winston-Salem to meet he and his parents, and I, I just couldn't believe um, how different he looked, you know, totally different, um, skin shade, you know, was 50 pounds lighter, um, you know, didn't no longer. And when I met Kevin the first time, he looked like a, you know, a free safety for the Carolina Panthers. And, when I, <laughs> and quite honestly, when I saw him in that in that restaurant, he looked like... Um, a hospital patient is exactly what he looked like. And I, I was. I, I
0: was, <laughs> I was what, probably yeah, at a dialysis clinic yeah. that morning. Yeah. That's <laughs> <Yeah. Exactly laughs> what he was. So.
1: Yeah. And so the next day, we go to the hospital to meet Kevin's new doctor. He had been seeing a pediatric nephrologist at Emory, and um, they, they brought him to an adult nephrologist here in Winston-Salem. And um, we met with his doctor, and his doctor said, you know, Kevin's going to need a new kidney. And that was the first time Kevin and his parents had heard that. Certainly the first time I had heard that. He was like, medication is not going to fix what you have. We've got to make sure the Anka bacteria is gone and get you a new kidney. And um, the rest is history.
0: Yeah. And uh, the the transplant, one thing that I just remember after the fact was about two or three years later, I have a granddad that's 103. And, you know, he lived in South Georgia. Uh, World War II veteran, one of the bravest people, people I know. And I used him as a guidebook for life. And I just remember about two or three years after the transplant, he comes to me and he says, I never thought I would see anything like that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is two or three years after um, he knew the transplant happened. Um, he's like, I never thought I would see a, a white man give a black man a kidney like that. And you know, he's a man of very few words, especially to me, he knows me as a, as a baby, but he told me that. And, you know, I started to kind of see how, how special those relationships are and how different it looks when there's a black person, the way they communicate with a white person. And there's a white person that's given a part of themselves to me and how different that looked to him really stood out to me, to me that day. Uh, so yeah. That kind of is a catalyst to being, you know, being open and willing to have these conversations and create something like getting the game. So, so
3: that kind uh, of segues so right go. on in. Yeah. That's a nice. Yeah, nice there you thing. go. That's how it's like <laughs> slide on in there, right?
1: And one of the interesting parts, Marcus, of that original story is it was covered by every new media outlet in the country. All of them, ESPN, CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, you you name it, and not one of them mentioned race. Wow. Not wanna and that's that's what we're dealing with here. People don't want to talk about it. They wanna sweep it under the rug, pretend like it doesn't exist. And we've gotta get this out this conversation out in the open so we can move past it. We've gotta be more intentional about those conversations.
3: Eric and I are just gonna switch seats and let y'all lead and answer like this. I'm <laughs> doing you are nailing it. So so talk you hit some of it. So Get in the game. Let's talk about what led to the start of it. And I think you hit some of that. But where did that come from? Where did that ideal spark from?
1: So um, about five days after Memorial Day, George Floyd was senselessly murdered and the world was exploding around us. And I was calling all of my former players of color just to check on them, make sure they were doing okay. Um, see if they needed an ear to bend, somebody to yell at, you know, you know, just try to, you know, be a friend in that situation. Those trying times, there was no way that I personally could understand what they were going through, but I just wanted them to know that I was, that I was there for them. Um, One of those calls was of course to Kevin. And through the course of that conversation, I told him a story that I'd never told him before, which was when I found out I was a match I went to a friend of mine and I said, hey, great news. I'm a match for Kevin. I'm going to give him my kidney. And he looked at me with a puzzled look on his face and he's like, well, can you do that? And I was a little surprised and I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, isn't Kevin black? And- when he asked that question, I, you know, my first instinct was was jarring. I was just like taken aback. But then I realized it wasn't a racist or a malicious question. It was just a not understanding science question. So I kind of moved past it, and and I remember my answer very clearly, which was, well, yeah, my blood and his blood are the same, and that's all that matters. And as soon as I said that to Kevin on that phone in the midst of Memorial Day and everything that was going on around us, I was like, it was just like a lightning bolt went off, and I was like, this is the message the world needs to hear. They need to see, thank you for the middle-aged compliment. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, But they need to see an old white guy standing next to a young black guy saying, our blood is the same and that's all that matters. So I made a phone call to a friend of mine who lives at the center of kind of social entrepreneurship and education technology. And I told her, I said, this is what I want to do. So I want to take our story into the schools and parlay that into conversations and education. Can't just be conversation. Um, it's got to be education and and action um, as well, but parlay that into to real work in the schools to be more intentional around race.
0: Yeah. And I'll go to the one of the first days at page this year. We are facilitating a class, and in in the intro section of our playbook, we tell that story, or I get to tell that story as best I can. And the students looked at me like I had two heads, and they're all like, "How did he not know?" Like, and I'm like. This is a point. This is what we're dealing with. The generation after generation after generation that one, believe that, and two, haven't had these conversations where they can kind of dispel that myth. So you you have people that have let their brain create a profile or a stereotype or a bias. And that intends, like it it hurts people. And even when you're not trying to, because if that person would have said that to me, you know, now I'm sitting in a situation where I got to look at him differently as a human. When it's it's something that he just probably heard over and over again, and 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 thought about, and never had these types of conversations to uh, dispel those types of myths.
3: I was thinking when you were talking about your grandfather, like all the things that he has seen from generation to generation, and so probably how impactful that was to him to to some of the things that I'm sure that he's lived through to now experience something of a totally different than what, you know, how life started for him and what he saw in his community and area. So I I just thought that was absolutely amazing. So um, another connection was that, you know, same thing with, with George Floyd. My call came from him and he, I think he was more, from Eric, and he, he was more upset than I was. Like, you okay, you good? Like, this is just crazy. and And so I think that one of the things that comes out of conversations like that is just, you know, really building allies and knowing that there are other people there that support you that I may not necessarily understand. I might not necessarily have to have those types of conversations with my with my children, but I can teach them to be good. I can just teach them to be good people. I can teach them how to relate, how to understand, how to be empathetic to those types of conversations. So definitely appreciate you lifting that up.
2: As as all of you know, I played sports in school and really saw playing fields and teams being a great leveler. How did playing sports, you know, a couple of different questions, how, how did playing sports make an impact on each of you personally? Um, and then do you see sports as a tool that we as educators can use to bridge those differences that we all know are out there? Talk to us a little bit about that. I'm going to tell another story. Um, <laughs> so like, like Coach said, I played like my hair was on
0: fire growing up. And one of the things that I got told and that got reinforced in my mind was that like On a baseball field, when you're the black guy, you have to be the best player. If you're a black guy on a baseball team, you were the best player. And like, so I, you know, I, I played like that. I played like, if I'm not the best player, I'm not on the team. So that had an effect on me. But also I got to meet a bunch of different personalities, whether it was in South Georgia, where I left my hometown and the coach was a former minor league baseball player he was a white guy but he was the first white person that i think about 12 years old that really invited me to his home like allowed me to see how they live and it, it well i guess it, it's i don't feel like it's today anymore we it, it's kind of part of my family and that happened at 12 um i wish it would have happened earlier right but it it, it did happen and it happened through baseball and the same thing happened when we get to wake I meet who is now my best friend, who's Italian-American. And, you know, coming from South Georgia, Italian-American didn't necessarily exist. You were either white or you were black. And we had that conversation probably the first day we met. And I had to go over, yeah, you know, I'm I'm from Georgia. No, I'm not from Atlanta. You know, I grew up on a farm. All right. And I, he's from Boston area and he was like, I went to a boarding school. So I'm like, okay, no, he's not like a South, <laughs> b- South Boston, like, you know, the way she be on the but... movies. So we, we had that conversation and, um, that all happened because of sports. We were in the same locker room and forced to get to know each other and willing to take that risk and say, Hey, like you, you said this, like, tell me more. So, yeah, I think definitely baseball. I mean, you got hours in the dugout. <laughs> Well, I get to know your teammate.
1: And building on that, you know, the cool thing about sports is you have an easy common goal, right? You want to win a championship and you want to build a great team culture. Like you want to be with your buds um, on the ball field. And so on the sports field and in the locker rooms, race doesn't matter. Socioeconomic status doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. It's all about what do we have to do to work towards this common goal? How do we make the organization better? How do we lift each other up? How are we more intentional about the way we show up? That's what sports promotes. And for us, you know, to me, how do we translate to this classroom, to the classroom, getting the game? You know, we try to give the kids a common goal, which is kindness, empathy, dignity, diversity. You know, we want to have them, we want to take the KED principles and have that drive them to action in their communities where they're making an intentional choice about how they show up for others. About how they choose a life of service over self. So to me, sports has given us the blueprint. We just need to change the goal.
0: Yeah, and and if I can add one more thing is that it, it's not just sports. It's you know a club. It's we put up posters at a school, and you know six or eight kids from the school show up, and they're willing to talk about race. And now they're closer because because of it. They immediately approach the conversation about their differences, visible and non-visible. And I think we remember those moments when we like approach the conversation, knock down that barrier, and we're able to have a deeper conversation, whether it's about race or it's about something else. But now you know somebody on a different level. And I think getting the game does that, especially when we have groups of teams or a club or or. You know, whatever the platform that we introduce, getting the game in, we we knock down that barrier really quick, and and they're able to kind of stop walking on edge eggshells egg and really get to you know improving our social climate. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, like that, I, I think one of the things that that that
3: you all said that was really profound was just that teams really have like this common goal. Um, like, if you're successful, then we as a team are successful. You're successful individually, then you win, and we all win. Uh, which is definitely a mantra I think that we kind of all adopt. You know what I mean. So, so as a society, like looking at that from a from a commonality perspective is is extremely powerful. Um, the other thing that I think that's important that kind of goes along with that is you know is, is that there are some in- you all have listed on your website some some really interesting statistics, right? And so, for instance, like 1.3 million aged 12 to 18, those students they experience bullying that are related to a host of things like race and national origin, religion, gender. And we all know that sexual orientation is a, is a major one right now. 25% of students who face that type of discrimination will be diagnosed with some type of mental disorder or some kind of, or experience some kind of psychological distress. And so when you think about that from a, um, a numbers perspective, like that, those are, that's astronomical, like especially from a society. So, but on a positive note, you know, and what keeps us optimistic is that 75 percent of young Americans um, wish that they could do more to help support the causes that they care about. And they, and they care about these topics and conversations. Um, so how is or how can getting the game kind of help start to address some of this?
1: Well, Marcus, you make a great point with that last statistic, that 75 percent stat. These kids today they get it. Like they are more socially aware than any generation possible. You know, you talk to CEOs like Scott Baxter of Contour here locally with Wrangler and Lee Jeans and and his young employees, they hold that corporation's feet to the fire. Like, what are we doing for corporate social responsibility? Like they're not going to work for a company that that isn't socially aware and responsible, mm-hmm. which I love. So it's our job to kind of help these kids again, you know, as parents and as coaches, I think we give our kids three things, right? We give them information, we give them resources, and we give them opportunity. And then it's up to them after that. We're not here to tell these kids what to do or how to do it, but we do want to give them good information. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to give them the resources to go out there and make a difference. And we want to give them an opportunity to go out there and make a difference. And what we've seen through our program is that these kids take that baton and they run with it. They do incredible things. They're putting shoes on the feet of the homeless. They're feeding people. They're having suicide prevention hotlines amongst their classmates. I mean, they're going out there and they're making a big difference. So for us, it's just about giving these students the the tools they need to be successful, choose their best life, and be the best versions of themselves.
0: Yeah, I'll add in something we did with the girls basketball team over at PAGE. We, we picked a word. We picked one of our timeless non-values, Compassion. And we were able to put a word on something that we're going to focus on. And I think when we talk about those, those statistics and one, they're, they're scary. I mean, that people are getting bullied, but I think it's, I think we can move that in a positive way by putting values out there, putting the name on, Hey, we will use compassion. We will use kindness. We will show empathy. We put them on their bag tags and, and kind of allowed our, the seniors on that team um, one of them received our getting the game scholarship to be able to say, hey, check your bag tag. Like you, you put this on there. You decided on compassion. So, wow. you no, know, so you have to do that. And, you know, at the end of the year, I asked Coach Johnson to have some of the players sort of choose who would kind of represent girls basketball for that award. And they they sent a video just shouting her out like she did. She did call some people out or she did show compassion very intentionally. and. I think that's how we, we combat what may be a passive issue of, of bullying, I call somebody outside their name, with a very intentional way of saying, I'm going to be compassionate. So yeah, I think that's the way we sort of combat that issue with uh, with getting the game.
2: If that's And that's another experience or another example of our students doing great things and really driving the work home. This was such a great conversation that part two continues in our next episode. Please keep listening to Guilford Education Alliance's Bright Futures podcast. For more information, go to geanc.org.